Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Mary, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect program, A Guide for Coping with Childhood Lymphoma. This is part one, and part one is, a, is actually um, understanding childhood lymphoma. And so there will be a second part to this, um, and, um, and we'll tell you about that date as well. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And I have to say that um, the Lymphoma Research Foundation has played a very key role in making today's program possible. We also have a number of other collaborating organizations that have partnered with us to reach out to so many of you on the program today. And we have on the program today over 396 participants. And you come from all over the United States, from all different states, and every state is represented in different regions. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Georgia, Korea, the Philippines, Switzerland, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, and the United Kingdom. So you clearly come from all over the world and are a group of information seekers. Today's program, this project, is supported through the Lymphoma Research Foundation's cooperative agreement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I really want to thank the Lymphoma Research Foundation for really making this call possible um, through this cooperative agreement and with the, with the Centers for Disease Control. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And before I introduce them, I want to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials, there's information about our speakers and what they're going to cover. And there also is a lot of information about all the different collaborating organizations, um, their resource information, their 800 numbers and websites that you can use actually um, for yourselves in terms of additional help. And there also is an evaluation form. And I would ask you each to take a moment at the end of today's program and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us the programs that you would like us to offer? Indeed, this particular program was one that many of you have requested, and we were finally able to provide this for you. So um, I want to start by introducing our, our faculty, our speakers for today. Um, they're really wonderful, and our focus is on understanding childhood lymphoma. Our first speaker is Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Dr. Johnson is Medical Director, Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Program, Assistant Professor, Hematology Oncology Division, Department of Pediatrics, Seattle Children's Hospital. Dr. Johnson is going to address understanding a childhood lymphoma diagnosis, current treatment options, and psychosocial care for children and families. And now turn the program over to Dr. Johnson. Okay, thanks. Um, so I'm going to spend... Um, probably between about uh, 10 or 15 minutes talking to you, and then I will um, hand it over at that point to um, Dr. Franklin. What I want to do is first present a um, very broad overview of cancer and lymphoma, um, then talk about uh, lymphomas in specific, both non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma, what their presenting symptoms are, how physicians make a diagnosis. I'll go through how one stages a lymphoma and um, makes a decision about what types of treatment to give. Um, we'll talk about uh, the 
types of treatment a bit more specifically for both Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas uh, with a few words about both clinical trials and also um, psychosocial care for children with cancer. So uh, first, a broad overview. So um, as you uh, may know, the human body is composed of millions of cells, and these cells in their normal processes divide routinely um, to uh, replace cells that are damaged or dying, and, uh, and that happens um, millions of times every day. And so cancers result from um, genetic damage to cells, and um, that is damage to the DNA, which is the genetic material which is in every single cell of our body. And that damage can happen either by chance or alternatively um, because of an inherited inherited genetic problem or from exposure to a toxin um, in the environment such as um, pesticides or um, other agents that we'll talk about later. Um, so uh, damage to the DNA um, in a given cell can um, make it unable to understand the normal stop signals, um, which leads it to um, proliferate out of control and become a cancer. So lymphoma is a, a type of blood cancer um, that happens when a white blood cell or a lymphocyte becomes cancerous and then forms a solid tumor within either um, lymph nodes, which are um, part of the lymphatic system um, located in your neck. You may have had swollen um, glands after a cold, and they can also, they're also in the armpits and the groin and elsewhere in the body. Um, and then there are um, other parts of the lymphatic system, including um, the spleen and other organs, and so lymphomas can also affect those areas. Um, and the two main types of lymphocytes or white blood cells um, that can uh, cause a lymphoma are B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes. And so uh, you'll sometimes hear uh, those terms in, in the discussion of lymphomas. And each of those uh, types of lymphocytes plays a different role in helping the body fight infections. Um, and, of course, once a cancer has started, um, the cancerous lymphocytes can uh, move through the body, either through the blood or through the lymphatic system, and um, form tumors elsewhere in the body. So lymphomas in um, kids and teens um, are uh, the third most type of common uh, the third most common type of cancer in this age group, um, the most common being leukemias. Um, the uh, pattern of presentation is, is a little bit different um, between non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma. So um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is mostly a disease of older adults, and in fact, less than 2% of all cases occur in kids and teens. And the incidence uh, across the uh, childhood and teenage age group um, is fairly similar year to year. So it's, you know, a reasonably um, rare tumor in this age group, again, compared to older patients, but you're equally likely to get a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma if you're one-year-old or eight-years-old or 15-years-old. Uh, in contrast, Hodgkin's disease is very much a disease of adolescents and young adults. And the peak incidence is in that age group with a second peak in older adults in their um, 30s and 40s. And um, it's actually an extremely rare tumor in early childhood, um, and you rarely see it before um, five, six, or seven years of age. Um, and in terms of outcome, lymphomas um, do very well. Um, so there, you know, there are no good cancers to get, but, um, and of course the, you know, any given patient's prognosis depends on um, 
the, the features of their own tumor, and, and uh, doctors can discuss this specifically. But as a group, um, these are very, very treatable cancers, and um, for, um, you know, all, essentially all types of uh, lymphomas um, that children uh, get with, with any frequency, um, we have good options for cure. Um, the presenting symptoms are often uh, vague and can persist for either weeks or months before diagnosis. And um, the most common one is lymph node swelling, um, which can be noticed, again, um, in the, the neck or the groin. Um, it's sometimes if um, there is uh, disease in the chest, that can cause a cough and sometimes fatigue. Um, additionally, uh, for Hodgkin's disease, um, patients may get what's called B symptoms, uh, which consists of uh, fevers and night sweats, so sweating so much at night that they have to either, um, patients have to either change their pajamas or change their sheets, so not just a little bit sweaty but a lot, and significant weight loss that is um, 10% of their body weight, um, which is unintentional. And um, in Hodgkin's disease, those symptoms, the B symptoms, have some prognostic significance so that patients who have those B symptoms um, may need a bit more aggressive uh, treatment than those who don't. Um, also in Hodgkin's, a, a presenting symptom that's unusual is that drinking alcohol may make the involved lymph node areas hurt, which is um, just a, a fairly un unusual and specific sign for that. Um, so when patients have symptoms and, and go to the doctor, um, they can expect to have blood tests done, including complete blood counts to look at the, the numbers of uh, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets in the body, measures of their uh, kidney and liver function, as well as scans. So CT scans kind of um, take a cross-sectional picture um, through uh, the area of the body that's uh, in question, and those are, are commonly done. And in the past few years, doctors have been using lots of PET scans, um, which uh, essentially look at the metabolic activity of, um, of an area. And in general, the uh, glucose consumption, um, the, which is um, – an indication of the metabolic activity of a tumor is higher than in other tissues, and so a PET scan will help light up the area of cancer. Um, also, to make the diagnosis, patients usually have bone marrow biopsies in which a needle is put into the, um, the hollow part of the bone marrow and some cells drawn out from that. Those are um, uh, The bone marrow uh, creates the cells that later uh, float around in the bloodstream, white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. Um, for diagnosis, patients usually have a lumbar puncture, um, putting a needle into the, the lower back and withdrawing some cerebrospinal fluid to see if there's cancer there. And then um, patients will have a tissue biopsy, which can either be a t full excision of a cancerous node or sometimes just um, a needle biopsy to sample a part of the node. Um, so then once the, the diagnosis is made, um, staging um, is uh, similar for Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's, um, patients are divided up into stage one, stage two, stage three, or stage four. Stage one um, is not especially common. It's when only one group of lymph nodes that's outside the abdomen or mediastinum, so such as the neck or groin or armpit, um, are involved with cancer and there's no disease elsewhere in the body. Stage two, there are two or more areas on the same side of the diaphragm, so either um, all sort of above the diaphragm, above the waist, or um, the abdomen and below. Um, stage three is when there's disease on both sides of the diaphragm. And uh, 
uh, both above and below. And stage four is when there's metastatic disease, when the cancer has spread to the bone marrow, to the brain, or to the cerebrospinal fluid, um, which, again, is the fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord. Um, additionally, for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you sometimes hear the designations group A, group B, and group C. Um, group A means the tumor was completely resectable. Group B means the tumor was not completely resectable. And group C means that uh, there is distant metastatic disease, again, in the bone marrow, or the brain, or the cerebrospinal fluid. Um, now, for Hodgkin's staging, you'll often um, hear the stage in a, le- a number plus a letter. So it'll be something like stage 2B. Um, and sometimes a, another letter as well, stage 2BX, stage 2BS, uh, um, for example. And so um, the staging I just talked about, 1, 2, 3, and 4, and then um, B means that the patient has B symptoms, whereas A means the patient does not have any B symptoms, um, B symptoms, again, being fever, weight loss, and night sweats. Um, bulk disease is sometimes referred to in um, documentation as an X um, and extranodal disease, um, which means that there's disease in areas of the body other than lymph nodes, is um, designated by an E, and disease in the spleen is designated by an S. So if you see a, a letter and number combination, that's what those things are referring to. Um, so differentiating Hodgkin's disease from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, both arise from lymphocytes, white blood cells, um, and Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's differ in appearance under the microscope. They express different proteins on their cell surfaces, and they have different patterns of growth and spread through, throughout the body. Um, so I'll talk about both individually. Um, for Hodgkin's disease, the World Health Organization identifies uh, six different types. Um, the most common type in teens and um, children is nodular sclerosing. Um, And in Hodgkin's disease, um, there is no clear-cut association with any exposures to toxins or chemicals or other agents within the environment. Um, HIV is a risk factor for Hodgkin's. Um, Hodgkin's is more common in developed countries with high socioeconomic status and um, less crowding. And so it's thought that there may be some role with um, Hodgkin's uh, disease uh, occurring in patients who are not exposed to um, certain infections as a young child. Um, about 7% of patients with Hodgkin's have a relative with Hodgkin's, but the genetics of um, susceptibility to Hodgkin's are still being worked out, and there's no clinical testing available. Um, you know, if you have a, a relative with Hodgkin's and you want to know what your risk is, it's not possible to do that yet. Um, and um, in addition to nodular sclerosing Hodgkin's, there's another uh, variant which is reasonably common, especially in young children and especially in boys, um, called lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin's. And that's a subset of um, patients with Hodgkin's disease that tend to do very, very well and um, are most often cured of their disease. Now, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, is a bit different in that there are um, 61 types um, many are uh, much more common in older adults than, than in kids. Um, the incidence is um, going up. It's actually doubled since the 1970s. And um, although um, family history can play a role, um, exposure to environmental toxins um, is also a, a risk factor um, that's quite significant for a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, also, immunodeficiency um, with AIDS or other um, congenital um, inherited immunodeficiencies um, leads to an increased chance of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, And also people who have had organ transplants get more non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
Um, so what, what I want to do now is talk particularly about the different types of um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, because, uh, again, there, there are many of them. In children, um, the, the most common types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma are lymphoblastic lymphoma, Burkitt's lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So I'll just say a couple of words about each one. Um, lymphoblastic lymphoma is um, most commonly treated uh, like a leukemia. So they're, they're usually treated on protocols for ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and that treatment uh, usually lasts several years. Um, Burkitt's lymphoma and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are both what we call mature um, B-cell lymphomas. Burkitt's is very, very aggressive, and it's seen in uh, kids and teens much, much more than in older people. Um, in uh, Africa, it's, it's common in the jaw, but in the States, it's really found um, mostly in other areas, um, the abdomen, the bone marrow, the central nervous system, um, the kidneys, and the gonads um, can, can be uh, places where this tumor starts. And it's actually one of the fastest growing tumors such that the number of tumor cells in the body can double in a 24-hour period. Um, and so thus it's very aggressive, but the tumor cells also respond very quickly usually to chemotherapy because chemo kills rapidly growing cells. And so for Burkitt's, the treatment is very intense um, with many different types of chemotherapy agents given close together, but the treatment only lasts for a few months. Um, Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, again, another type of mature B-cell lymphoma, is also fast-growing. It's the most common form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in adults, but it's less common in kids. And, um, again, children usually do um, very well with this, um, that disease. Uh, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, um, the last type of non-Hodgkin's I'll talk about specifically, comprises about 20% of lymphomas in um, children, only about 3% in adults. It's the most common T-cell malignancy in kids. Um, it can arise in, in the skin or any other organs in the body. And some um, anaplastic large cell lymphomas express the protein ALK on their cell surface, and uh, that subset of patients is, is very highly uh, curable with chemo. Patients who don't express ALK um, may be given more aggressive chemotherapy um, to cure their tumors. Uh, other rare subtypes, um, there are more than 50 of them. They're rare in kids and um, patients with um, any of these diseases, really, but especially the rare, one, rare ones should be treated by a pediatric oncologist with specific expertise in kids' lymphomas. Um, so now, um, a few words about treatment. And again, um, treatment protocols do differ um, by institution, and um, so I, I'll speak um, in fairly uh, broad terms about these. Um, first, a couple of words about clinical trials. The majority of kids and teens um, with cancer in America are treated in the context of a clinical trial, um, and these are mostly done through the Children's Oncology Group, which is um, a collection of more than 200 cancer centers in uh, North America and increasingly worldwide that specialize in uh, treating children's cancer. And um, this collaboration allows doctors to... Um, study very rare tumors and um, design treatment protocols um, to test, um, you know, one potentially effective therapy against another. And uh, that type of research has led to really rapid progress and improvements in survival um, over the past several decades. And so those clinical trials are usually um, available. Um, there's not always an open protocol for every diagnosis, but um, for many there are. Um, and um, if that's an option for 
um, your child, uh, your doctor will uh, generally offer that to you, give a full description of the trial, and of course it's um, the family's decision as to whether or not to participate in the clinical trial or um, alternatively to uh, pursue a more standard therapy that's um, not testing a new agent or a new um, treatment method, but instead relying on the results of um, usually what's chosen as the results of the most recently uh, published clinical trials. Um, and, and that can uh, be done in families that, that don't want to participate. So for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the treatment's quite different in kids and adults. Um, the mainstay of treatment is chemotherapy, and again, usually um, several or even many different drugs are given um, together within a, a short period of time to try to kill the cancer cell in a bunch of different ways. It's generally given in cycles of several weeks to allow the body some time to recover in between. Um, most regimens, uh, and they have different acronym names, include the drugs vincristine and also steroids, and there are multiple other drugs that may be used, including um, anthracyclines, L-asparaginase, um, thioguanine, cytarabine, methotrexate. And again, um, the selection of those drugs is based on the results of clinical trials. And um, because these trials are done worldwide, sometimes in the States, sometimes in European groups, um, the choice of um, which protocol to use um, in patients that are not on a COG trial may differ by institution. Um, and the goal of lymphoma, lymphoma treatment is to kill the tumor cells um, and save the patient's life while minimizing the risk of late effects like damage to the heart and infertility. Um, and so protocols change over time both to try to improve survival and to decrease side effects. Um, most patients, both with non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma, need um, a central line, um, either a Hickman catheter or a port in order to safely deliver the um, strong chemotherapy medicines, um, the IV medicines into the body. Um, in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, patients usually don't need uh, radiation therapy, um, and uh, again, chemo is the mainstay of treatment. So a few more words about uh, Hodgkin's therapy now. Um, Hodgkin's responds very well to both radiation and chemo and is potentially curable with radiation, although um, now the, the standard is uh, more to um, use chemotherapy in order to uh, decrease the risk of the side effects of radiation, such as um, breast cancer in women. Um, who get chest radiation. And um, so thus, most patients start out with chemotherapy with radiation reserved for people who either don't respond well to the chemotherapy or who have higher, higher risk disease. Um, the adult protocols are similar but not identical to pediatric protocols. Um, and again, they consist of, of many different um, medicines usually given within a, a short um, time period, and um, regimens are, um, adult, one adult regimen is uh, ABVD, adriamycin, bleomycin, vinblastin, decarbazine. Um, a common pediatric regimen for intermediate and higher risk tumors is ABVEPC, which is adriamycin, bleomycin, vincristine, etoposide, prednisone, and cyclophosphamide. Um, and those um, treatments generally last for um, just a few months, um, usually three to four months, um, and um, are sometimes followed by radiation therapy for people who need them. So finally, just a couple of words about psychosocial care. Um, we, um, you know, in pediatric cancer centers, uh, recommend that all kids and teens with cancer be treated by 
um, pediatric oncologists who are specialized in the care of this population. And in fact, um, the you know the vast majority of kids with cancer are treated in uh, pediatric oncology centers. And this is a good thing for many reasons. First of all, the specific expertise of um, the uh, physicians there, but also the multidisciplinary care teams that are available to take care of not just the the kid or teen with cancer, but really their whole family and um, to try to support the family through this very difficult period. And so um, typically at pediatric cancer centers, um, patients will um, have access to social workers and school teachers, um, physical and occupational therapists, uh, psychologists um, for counseling. And um, I guess one thing I would encourage is to uh, really make good use of that multidisciplinary team and the psychosocial care that's offered. Um, sort of, um, you know, make sure that you get to know um, the, the different people on the team and um, just use them to uh, to help meet your needs and ask the questions that you have. Uh, it's very important for the team to understand what your questions or concerns are and um, almost invariably the, the team will really try to work with the family to meet everyone's needs, um, get people's questions addressed and, and get the patient um, effectively treated. Um, and that's all I have. I'll pass it over to Dr. Franklin and then um, take questions also when, when the time comes for that. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Johnson, just for a very informative and very comprehensive presentation. I think um, you covered a lot and did a wonderful job, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Our next speaker um, is Dr. Anna Franklin. Dr. Franklin is Assistant Professor, Division of Pediatrics. She's Medical Director, Adolescent and Young Adult Program at University of Texas MD Anderson Children's Cancer Hospital. And uh, Dr. Uh, Franklin is going to address what happens if a child relapses, managing side effects, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. Dr. Franklin? Thank you. So as Dr. Johnson mentioned, um, the chances of a child with lymphoma relapsing is actually quite small, fortunately. Um, some of the risk factors for the disease returning are that they were slow to respond to initial treatment, meaning that um, they had a positive PET scan still after several cycles of chemotherapy, or um, they had other high-risk features. Um, the higher the stage, typically the higher risk um, of relapse, but again, um, each individual patient needs to be um, discussed because there are many different factors that can affect the chance of the disease returning. Um, if the lymphoma does come back, it's typically found one of two ways. Um, the patient may become symptomatic again, um, meaning they may develop uh, large lymph nodes again, or develop other symptoms like the B symptoms with fevers and night sweats. Alternatively, when you complete treatment, typically you undergo um, CT scans and or PET scans periodically to check to see that the lymphoma has not returned. And sometimes we do see on those scans that the disease has returned. Once the disease has found to um, come back, we need to undergo a staging evaluation again. So the tests the child had the first time will be repeated again. Uh, for lymphoma, this means CT scans 
uh, PET scans, bone marrow um, biopsies, and for certain lymphomas, um, a spinal tap. We then use different chemotherapy regimens to um, get the lymphoma back into remission. Um, but something that is different this time around is that um, patients will need to undergo um, something called high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell rescue. And what that is is also called um, an autologous transplant. But what we do is we take the patient's own stem cells from uh, their blood or their bone marrow, and we give high, high doses of chemotherapy that destroy their own bone marrow, and then we give it back. And the principle behind this is it allows us to give higher doses of chemotherapy um, that without stem cell rescue would um, leave the patient with very low blood counts for a long time and put them at very high risk for infection. So typically, um, when the patients are receiving chemotherapy, after one of those cycles of chemotherapy, the patient will give uh, growth factors. Um, the child will receive growth factors like Neupogen um, at higher doses than normal. And this helps stimulate the bone marrow to produce more stem cells. When the blood counts start recovering, um, we go in and we collect those stem cells. Typically, this is done through a catheter in a blood vessel, and that's called peripheral blood uh, stem cell mobilization. Um, alternatively, they can do what's called a bone marrow harvest, which is where the patient is taken to the operating room, and um, they put needles into the bone marrow space and take out uh, bone marrow and the stem cells are within the bone marrow. Um, the autologous uh, transplant, or um, also called autologous stem cell rescue, typically involves um, being admitted to the hospital um, and receiving high doses of chemotherapy. Because it is high dose and very intense, there tends to be more side effects um, with a higher incidence of low uh, blood counts requiring um, transfusions and a higher risk of infection. There's also um, a high chance that the patient will develop mouth sores um, and other um, side effects. Then after um, all of the chemotherapy has been completed, um, the patient will receive their own stem cells back again. And this is given just like a blood transfusion the bag of stem cells looks very much like a bag of packed red blood cells, although maybe not as dark red, um, and it will be infused through um, their uh, central venous catheter or their port or their IV. Um, <clears throat> they are watched relatively closely during this infusion um, because there is a risk of um, reactions during the infusion. And then the patient stays in the hospital until their blood counts do recover um, and that they are free from infections and their other symptoms are controlled. So um, in summary, 
If the disease comes back, we give more chemotherapy to obtain a second remission, and then stem cells will be collected from the patient either through um, a catheter or through a bone marrow harvest. The patient will then receive um, high doses of chemotherapy that destroy their own bone marrow and at the same time are destroying the lymphoma cells. And then they're given their own stem cells back. Um, after the autologous stem cell um, transplants, some patients will go on to receive um, additional radiation therapy, um, but most that depends on what kind of lymphoma they do have. If the disease comes back a second time, um, there are many different treat treatment options still available. Um, patients that have undergone an autologous stem cell transplant will oftentimes then be referred for an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Again, the patient will be given um, chemotherapy to get them into remission, then they'll receive chemotherapy to destroy their own bone marrow and any residual lymphoma cells, and then they're given uh, stem cells from another donor. Sometimes this is um, a brother or sister, and sometimes it's an unrelated donor, and these days um, cord blood units are also given uh, to um, regenerate the marrow. So next, I will talk a little bit about managing side effects and how doctors um, come to understand what's causing those side effects um, and how we can work together to resolve them. Um, side effects that are fairly common in patients with lymphoma are nausea and vomiting. Um, they can have fatigue, um, hair loss. They can have numbness and tingling in their hands and feet, um, and obviously many other symptoms. First, your healthcare provider, your doctor, your nurse practitioner, your nurse um, may ask you quite a few questions just in terms of um, when the side effects started, um, how long it lasts, is it there all the time, or does it come and go? Is there anything that makes it worse? Um, are there things that make it better? Um, are there certain positions that make uh, the symptom um, better or worse? Um, and when we take into account uh, your answers to these questions, as well as looking at what medications you're currently on, what chemotherapy you've recently re received, your physical examination and your lab um, results for that day, we can come up with sort of a list of things that doctors refer to as a differential diagnosis. And we can um, say that it's most likely this, other things that it could be are um, X, Y, and Z, and we can uh, come up with a plan together as to how best manage these. Um, some things, some side effects are treated, uh, unfortunately, with more medication. Um, neuropathy, um, we can use um, two different kinds of medications to relieve some of those symptoms. Nausea is frequently uh, controlled with good um, anti-nausea medicines these days. 
um, that is sometimes um, can be a course of trial and error because different children respond better to some medicines for nausea and other children uh, do not respond as well to medicines we try first. But fortunately, there's many, many different uh, kinds of nausea medicines available today, uh, so it's very rare that we are not able to control the nausea and vomiting of a patient. Um, next, I'll talk a little bit about maintaining um, a child with lymphoma's quality of life. And for me, that is, um, my goal is trying to achieve a balance between keeping the patient safe um, with their suppressed immune system, but also at the same time helping them to maintain as normal of a life as possible. Um, for most lymphoma patients, uh, the chemotherapy is quite intense and their blood counts may be very low. So going to school um, with, you know, 30 patients, uh, 30 children in a classroom um, can be dangerous because they can develop infections. So frequently children with lymphoma will be um, taken out of regular school and set up with homebound um, instruction. And typically this is only while they're actively being treated. Once their blood counts recover, after their last cycle of chemotherapy, they can frequently return to school. Um, certain things, um, exceptions can be made for certain milestone events um, or uh, minor alterations in the treatment schedule. I had a um, patient that was a junior um, in high school and she was invited to the junior prom and she wanted to go um, but the way her chemotherapy was scheduled, she was going to be inpatient for the chemotherapy. So we delayed the chemotherapy for four to five days, and she was able to attend the prom. And I think sometimes making small exceptions like that um, can make a big difference um, in how well the child, um, you know, maintains a sense of normalcy. Um, Sometimes patients and families are nervous about approaching their physician, um, about asking about making exceptions and, and um, bending the rules. And sometimes another avenue to go through is either speaking to the nurse or the nurse practitioner or even the social worker um, to see how we can work together um, so that patients can do what they want to do while um, keeping them safe and healthy as possible. And with that, I will return it to Carolyn. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Franklin, for just a wonderful presentation, very, very informative and lots of information, um, and I, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Before we take questions, I want to introduce two other speakers. I want to first introduce Brian Tomlinson. Um, Brian is um, Chief Program Officer at the Lymphoma Research Foundation, and actually Brian is instrumental in making this program possible, um, both in terms of just the support for the program as well as the um, content and the speakers. So I want, to, I want us all to thank Brian. And Brian is going to say a few words about the um, Lymphoma Research Foundation and its free programs and services that are available. Brian? 
Well, thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you again to you and your team for a wonderful partnership. LRF and Cancer Care have been working together for over 10 years to present our teleconferences to um, people affected by the disease, so we truly value the relationship and the continued partnership to help meet the needs of people affected by lymphoma. I'd also like to thank uh, Drs. Franklin and Dr. Johnson for taking time to be with us today and for their excellent presentations and for all that they do for people affected by the disease. And lastly, I'd like to acknowledge the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for supporting today's call. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is the nation's largest nonprofit organization devoted exclusively to funding innovative research and providing people with lymphoma and healthcare professionals with up-to-date information about this type of cancer. Our mission is to eradicate lymphoma and serve those touched by this disease. Each year, we invest millions of dollars to combat lymphoma and assist those whose lives have been affected by a lymphoma diagnosis. The Foundation remains dedicated to identifying a cure through an aggressively funded research program and to helping members of the lymphoma community by providing comprehensive disease-specific programs and services. To date, the organization has funded over $45 million in research and more than 35,000 people participate in our programs and services each year. LRF provides a comprehensive series of programs and services for people affected by lymphoma and for all of you on the phone. We have a lymphoma helpline where our professional public health and mental health staff can assist members of the lymphoma community in their search for information about lymphoma and linking them to appropriate resources. You can reach this service by calling us at 1-800-500-9976. On today's call, you learned, you heard about clinical trials. We have a clinical trials information service where a member of our helpline team can assist patients in their search for clinical trials. We have a national one-to-one lymphoma support network that matches people with similar lymphoma-related experiences across the country. We have a variety of free publications and newsletters, including comprehensive disease guides, disease-specific fact sheets, and informational e-newsletters. We have a comprehensive disease guide on understanding childhood lymphomas. If you do not have a copy of this, you can call the helpline to request it. If you're a healthcare professional, we will ship bulk quantities to your offices for distribution to your patients. We have a number of webcasts and podcasts that are available on specific types of lymphoma, treatment options, and support topics, and a number of in-person patient conferences that we hold on the local, regional, and national levels. For more information, please contact a member of our helpline team by calling us at 1-800-500-9976 or visiting us on the web at lymphoma.org. Again, thank you to Carolyn Cancer Care, our speakers, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for supporting today's call. Carolyn? Well, thank you very much, Brian, and just thank you for your very warm words, and we so appreciate the collaboration. It's been amazing, and I, we plan to do many more things together, and there's a part two to this program, so stay tuned, everyone. And um, I just want to introduce our next speaker is Kathy Nugent, and, and Kathy is Director of Social Service, Cancer Care of New Jersey, and Kathy is going to share with you some of the free psychosocial services that Cancer Care offers. Kathy? Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you to everybody for participating in today's Connect Education Workshop. I would like to speak briefly about the services that Cancer Care offers. The diagnosis of childhood cancer can be devastating for a family. When a child faces cancer, not only is the child affected by the diagnosis, but everyone in the family is touched, parents, siblings, grandparents, and other relatives. Children and teens that are coping with cancer have special needs and concerns. Cancer Care has programs to help the family cope with childhood cancer. The Cancer Care Connect, excuse me, the Cancer Care programs for kids are all part of the free professional services Cancer Care provides 
but focuses on the particular needs of children and parents. We offer practical support, education, and advice to parents, and counseling to children and teens to help them understand cancer. Families who live near one of the cancer care offices may also participate in one of our therapeutic recreational events to teach children and parents how to talk to each other about cancer. The cancer experience often leaves us feeling all alone. At Cancer Care, people can gain emotional support, insight, and reassurance by participating in free telephone and online support groups. Cancer Care offers these support groups to people with cancer, their families and friends, caregivers and survivors. All of our support programs are moderated by professional oncology social workers. I would also like to mention that all of our Connect Education workshops are archived on our website as podcasts, and two workshops that may be of interest to you are now available on our website. And these are for parents, children, excuse me, for parents, guardians, and professionals, helping brothers and sisters of children with cancer, and another one is helping teachers and educators support siblings of children with cancer. You can also find free booklets and fact sheets on our website, which offer up-to-date and easy-to-read information about the latest treatments, managing side effects, and coping with cancer. The cancer experience can be economic burden to families as well. Financial assistance is available from Cancer Care. Cancer Care can help reduce the cost associated with transportation to and from treatment, home care, child care, and reimbursement for pain medications. In addition to this, a cancer care social worker can point you to other resources in your community that may offer financial assistance. More information about all of these services at Cancer Care can be found on our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And our 1-800-813-HOPE line provides more information about our services. In closing, I would just like to remind everyone that kids are incredibly resilient and can cope if we are simply honest with them. It's okay to tell kids what's really going on. In relation to talking to our children about cancer, I'd like to quote Mr. Fred Rogers. And he has said, whatever is human is mentionable. Whatever is mentionable is manageable. Cancer Care is here to help you. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy, for that very compassionate and very eloquent way of describing our services and also that it is important to talk to children about what's going on. So thank you very much. And now we have time for questions. We have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Mary to bring all of our speakers on board, and um, we're going to take as many questions as we can. And if we don't get to your question, please know that you can contact Cancer Care or the Lymphoma Research Foundation, and our staff are waiting to take your calls. Thank you. Mary? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Again, to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. One moment for our well, first question, please. Well, we're waiting for our first question. There's a question that just came in online. I just want to kind of ask our speakers about this. Um, the whole issue of diet um, eating, what, what, one can, what children can eat when they have a high risk of infection. And I wondered if, Dr. Franklin, if you would address that question. Sure. Um, some of this is institution-dependent um, and uh, physician-dependent. There is data that 
um, shows that patients, when they are neutropenic or their neutrophil counts is low from chemotherapy, that they are um, at risk of developing infections from eating things like fresh fruits, um, luncheon meats, and um, food prepared at restaurants. Um, there's conflicting data present as well that shows that um, as long as the fresh fruit um, and vegetables are washed very carefully um, and that if they eat out at a restaurant that it is something that is cooked well, um, that there really is not a significant increase in um, infection. So typically with my patients, I do not restrict their diet. I think these kids... Um, when they feel like eating, I want them to eat as healthily as possible. Um, one of our concerns is later on, um, you know, as survivors, that they do maintain a healthy lifestyle. And I think sometimes when we let these kids eat whatever they want, whenever they want, when they are getting chemotherapy, um, it sometimes sets up a behavior um, that can be difficult to change once the child um, has completed treatment. So I really encourage uh, my patients to eat fresh fruits and vegetables, um, knowing that there are physicians here um, at my hospital and um, that disagree with me. So it's something you should probably check with your physician. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you for that. And the other question I have, which has come in online, is that um, Ashley, what about um, when children's uh, counts are low, like what counts are low, what about their, um, like playing with other kids, going to malls, um, going to uh, large events with lots of people, how do you recommend, I'm going to ask both Dr. Johnson and Dr. Franklin to address this because it certainly um, is an issue in terms of children's normalcy of life and so what are your recommendations here and um, what, what is the standard of care in terms of recommendations? Uh, Dr. Johnson, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, I think that like the diet issue, um, that the recommendations you will get um, about uh, activities during periods of neutropenia are um, institutionally dependent and also um, within that even um, dependent on the, the treating physician. Um, the issue with going into crowded places when you're neutropenic is um, – twofold. Um, one, um, one concern is that you would get, um, so during a period of neutropenia, um, the thing that has a risk of killing you essentially um, is getting a bacterial infection which your body um, during, when neutropenic has no defenses to fight. So, um, you know, the, the reason um, that people need to come into the hospital very quickly and get antibiotics if they have a fever during that neutropenic period is because if it's a bacterial infection, that will be, that will be fatal if untreated. Now, that said, um, most of the things that you can catch at the mall or the movie theater are not uh, bacterial infections. And in fact, um, most cancer patients get these bacterial infections from um, organisms already living on their own body, the skin flora bacteria, the gut bacteria, um, that can uh, get into the body in, in um, various ways, through rectal fissures for the gut bacteria, through the central line for skin bacteria, et cetera. Um, and so thus, a lot of what you'll pick up in a crowd 
is, are viral infections, the colds. Um, and the, the concern for that, again, is twofold. Um, one is that patients with depressed immune systems can have more trouble fighting off even a viral infection. And so a viral infection might be more lengthy or, you know, more severe than it would be in a non-immunocompromised patient. And that's particularly true for people who have had a bone marrow transplant or who have a really prolonged period of neutropenia and thus a whole lot of suppression of the immune systems. And, um, again, the degree of that immunosuppression varies by protocol, but for, you know, many of these particularly shorter lymphoma protocols, that's not such a huge issue as it is with other um, types of cancer. Um, although it's it's still present. Um, the second issue with going into a crowd and getting a fever um, because of an infection that you pick up is that then during that period of neutropenia, the patient requires hospitalization and antibiotics and, um, you know, usually a couple of days in the hospital to make sure that that's not a bacterial infection. And so, again, I think that, um, you know, at, at my institution, the standard is if you're absolute neutrophil count A and C is below 500, then you're asked to stay away from crowds. And um, the reasons are um, so that you don't pick up an infection, mostly viral, potentially bacterial, and, um, you know, so that um, your chances of picking up one of these infections coming into the hospital and just, you know, being either A, sick, or B, hospitalized to make sure you don't have a bacterial infection, um, that uh, the confinement to uncrowded places during those neutropenic periods uh, decreases that risk. So that's a long, it, it's a long answer for that, but I think, um, it, you know, the, as Dr. Franklin said about the foods, the main thing is to normalize people's lives as much as possible. Um, and I think it's important for people to um, sort of follow the rules of their institution, but also understand the reasons behind the rules so that they can, as much as possible, normalize the child's life experience and, you know, go places when it's less crowded. And actually, you know, it's good to get out of the house and do things and, you know, playing outside is generally okay because you're not in a crowded space. And so, um, you know, sometimes people go the other direction and want to really um, isolate the kid to keep them safe. And um, it, it's really a, a balancing act as to what's best for the patient. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, uh, Dr. Franklin, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. And I think one of the important things with children and teenagers is if you're taking something away from them is to provide them with alternatives. Um, so they may not be able to go to the mall um, or something like that, but they could certainly have a play date at their house with, um, you know, one or two friends that we know um, are healthy and don't have a cough or a cold. Um, they can certainly play outside. You know, physical activity is always a good thing. Um, and typically outside, even at parks, you're not um, um, in big, big crowds. So those are two alternatives that I provide for my patients um, when I say that, you know, you can't do X, Y, and Z, but maybe you can do a play date or uh, go to the park or something like that. That's excellent and so wonderful in terms of balancing. They're really kind of providing some another option. 
And, well, and, it's, and one, one other um, just very brief thing about that is that during periods of neutropenia, many patients feel just fine. And so, um, y- you know, it's not like they're actually ill um, during this time as, you know, if they don't get a fever and if, if no complications happen, they could be feeling perfectly fine. And so actually, um, like Dr. Franklin said, getting some physical activity and um, getting out and about a little bit is, is to their advantage. Thank you both. I uh, actually thank all of you. You've just been a, an extraordinary faculty for today's program, wonderful speakers. Um, I want to thank you. I want to thank those who've submitted the online questions to us. And I know that there are people who have other additional questions. You know, please do call either uh, Cancer Care um, or the Lymphoma Research Foundation, and our staff are here to help you. You know, most importantly, and I also want to remind you that we do have a part two to this. So, indeed, there's so much more to cover. And the part two is on May 18th, Survivorship Care for Childhood Lymphoma Survivors. So stay tuned. And please, if you haven't signed up for that program, please do. There's information about that in your materials and both from Cancer Care and the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Most importantly, as we conclude today's program, Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care do not want any of you to feel that you're alone in coping with childhood lymphoma. We want you to know that you're part of a community of support and that there are lots of resources out there um, for you to utilize. And both Brian and Kathy and Dr. Johnson and Dr. Franklin have identified various resources that you can utilize, as well as your healthcare team, your treating team, and please do take advantage of them. Um, and, uh, and do call us because we're here to help you. I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.